Hello, everyone. Welcome to Midwestern Marks, our third podcast, um, talking about geopolitics, talking about Marxist theory. I'm going to talk a little bit about Iran today. Um, and we talk a lot about how, as a Western leftist, we should interpret interpret existing socialist countries. Um, but we're going to uh, touch on how do you interpret not socialist countries, but countries who are defying the economic interest of the United States um, and going a different way than Western capital. How should a socialist interpret that? Um, which Iran will provide a pretty good example for that. And we'll also touch on Assad in Syria. So yeah, how are you doing today, Carlos? I'm doing good. I'm recovering from uh, festivities that went on yesterday. So, <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm definitely going to be partaking in some festivities tonight. I've been working for like four weeks straight and have had no weekends. And now I got a Saturday. So if you guys see some some outrageous TikToks being posted or or some over the top tweets about China and Xi Jinping, uh, you know, it's me uh, drunk. <laughs> All right, so let's jump in here. Um, big news story. So obviously Trump's going to be out of office soon. Um, and there have been neocons in his administration pushing for aggression towards Iran. So you've seen the sanctions, um, sanctioning Iran's economy in the middle of a pandemic, obviously horrendous, disgusting, hurts the Iranian people more than it does the Iranian government. Um, and we've seen the assassination of Soleimani and the biggest escalation was pulling out of the Iran deal. So for those who don't know, what the Iran deal did was it made it so Iran's nuclear weapons program is surveilled 24-7 by the International Atomic Energy Agency. And not once since entering the Iran deal have the International Atomic Energy Agency accused Iran of proliferating nuclear weapons. Now, the U.S. pulls out of this deal that Obama and Biden got us into. So the deal said that the US wouldn't put sanctions on Iran, that we would have to pay them back money that, that we owed them from the 1979 revolution that I might talk about later. Um, and and, and, as a, and Iran had to have their nuclear program monitored. So essentially gave the US everything we could want, right? It handicapped Iran's military. And then Trump pulls out of it assassinates Iran's second in command, Soleimani, starts sanctioning them. And now Pompeo is doing a press conference saying that Iran is the state sponsor of Al-Qaeda. You know, of course, they've been pushing this rhetoric. Iran's the, the main state sponsor of terrorism as the U.S. is heavily funding Saudi Arabia, um, who is actually, you know, a state sponsor of terrorism in the Middle East and um, Israel. So now, as Trump's almost out of office, you have these neocons who have been pushing this hostile foreign policy with Iran for the last four years, trying to push Trump to actually do a war, to actually start an intervention, um, because they feel like Biden will be softer on Iran. And, and now's the time, you know, they have to have to do it now before um, Trump's out of office. So, so Pompeo did this press conference saying that Al Qaeda is literally hiding in in the center of Iran, which is not true. Al Qaeda and Iran have fundamentally different belief systems, you know, and Soleimani was the main person on the ground leading the fight against jihadist extremists. You know, he was fighting the Taliban. He was fighting with ISIS. He was fighting Al-Qaeda. And that's the guy we killed. And now we're accusing Iran of, uh, um, of sponsoring terrorism. So, I mean, it's pure nonsense. And Pompeo and the state establishment, you know, and the U.S. State Department are just relying hope you know or they know that u.s citizen or the u.s public has no idea what's going on in the middle east so they can they don't even have to try they can just make up blatant lies about iran um 
And, and yeah, and, and we know the real reason is the vast majority of Iran's economy in the hands of the state, all their major industry, um, it's centrally planned. So it's not socialist, uh, but it's not capitalist and it's not pro-Western in any way. Um, so yeah, do you have anything to comment before I keep ranting? Yeah, man, it's interesting how we're able to bank on um, racist prejudice uh, in the ideological sphere in order to excuse um, things that, that have an economic character to them. Um, and it's not just with Iran, it's all over the place. Um, the anti-China propaganda, it's a lot easier to believe that she's a, uh, that she is a, is a despot and, and whatever else you want to put on him when you have this previous structure of, of prejudice and of Orientalism and this previous perception of what people from that part of the world are like. Um, and it's the same thing with, with Muslim states. Um, you can put whatever characteristic you want on them and because they're from a certain part of the world and there's this preconception, people are inclined to believe it. And the paradox is that of course, when actual states do behave in those terroristic ways like Saudi Arabia, um, when there are allies, uh, we, don't, we, don't, um, we don't treat them the same way, so. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so blatant if you know what's going on, but at the same time, you see Western leftists falling for it because Iran is a theocracy, right? They're, uh, um, they're a Middle Eastern, they're based on uh, um, Islamic principles, and they say that capitalism is against the teachings of Islam. So then you have Western leftists because, or these liberals who, because Iran's a theocracy, who are, are doing regime change propaganda and imperialist propaganda saying, yes, Iran is, is this horrible country. And of course there are critiques of the theocracy. Um, if there's a party I support in Iran is the Today Party, which or today, I don't know how it's pronounced, but they're like a pro-Soviet communist secular party. Yes, I wish they were the ones who took power, but after the US overthrew Mossadegh, you know, the secular leader in 1953, Iranians got a lot more anti-US and, and you had a lot more people who were saying, no, let's let's create a theocracy, you know, a lot more um, uh, clergy and religious people who were coming to positions of power. And and this is because the US has been so involved in Iran, like um, after Mossadegh was the pro-Western Shah, um, you know, it's like a monarchy before they had this Islamic revolution. And of course, Yes, I wish it would have been a socialist revolution, but I support Iranian self-determination. And then if you look at what's happening now, um, the right wing or the, the more theocratic, more nationalistic Iranians are becoming more powerful because of the actions of the U.S. So if you look at it from an Iranian perspective, you enter into this peace deal with the U.S. saying they're not going to mess with you. And then two years later, the U.S. gets a new president who pulls out, kills your general and sanctions your people as there's a global pandemic. So from an Iranian perspective, it's screw the U.S. Let's kick the International Atomic Energy Agency out and let's make nukes to defend ourselves before they kill more of our people or before they do to, you know, launch an invasion like they did in Iraq. Um, not to say Iran's the same as Iraq. They're not. You know, the war would be the U.S. would take a lot more damage from war with Iran. Their military is much more um, built up and sophisticated. Their whole economy is. But um, but yeah, I mean, you see the 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 more i mean it's this trend we always see the as the u.s does imperialism against countries they're forced to become more authoritarian to defend themselves i mean it's essentially what you've seen in every single country in the world who has ever tried to go away from um western economic interests yeah and that's one of the things that in principle we would 
want people to oppose this based on um, their uh, a principled view of a nation's right to self-determination, right? But even if that's not why people are opposing it, even if they want to take a more selfish stab at it in the U.S., which is sort of the the pseudo anti-imperialist approach that like someone like Tulsi was promoting, just think about how in what position we put ourselves in, like you said, when we participate in these activities, because they only make the Iranian people um, hate our government more and and do um, perhaps consider actually building a nuclear weapon, right? So it only puts us in danger. It only escalates uh, reasons to send our brothers and sisters out to war in the Middle East for no goddamn reason besides the economic benefit of those from our ruling class. So if you wanna think about it just from a purely selfish point of view, if you don't care at all about Iran and, and, and just wanna be selfish about it, just consider the fact that our brothers and sisters are gonna be sent out to die for no reason whatsoever, besides the expansion of the pockets of, of a few in, in our ruling class. So um, yeah, there's no, way, there's no way to work around it where you can excuse the actions that are taking place um, in Iran, where you can excuse a criminal blockade. That blockade does nothing to destabilize a government, but it does everything to destabilize um, and harm the people. It's, it's, I consider it economic terrorism and um, it's just horrendous, it's, it's weak. Um, and yeah, if, and, and it's, and it's done to socialist countries all the time and not that Iran is socialist, uh, but like you said, a lot of their industry is nationalized. Um, a lot of their industry, what that means is that their, their resources are not at the disposal of private capital from the West. Um, so this, this is a threat to a system that's based on, on expansion. Um, but yeah, I think you hit most of it, uh, most of it right in, right in the head of the nail. Thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to add too, as you're saying, like from the selfish point of view, you know, as we try and mobilize against this and, and talk people out of it, when you're talking to Americans, you know, the left is really anti-troop and anti-military because of the atrocious things our military does. But the, the, the troops themselves are victims. These are 18-year-old kids leaving high school with no future or who want to pay for college who go into the military because it's stable income and they'll take almost anyone. And we don't take care of these people when they come back with PTSD. So when you're talking to Americans, you know, be like, are we really going to start another war? I mean, that's what Trump did. Trump was a Republican uh, who surrounded himself with neocons and military industrial con put like six different weapons manufacturers in charge of the state department and guys like Pompeo and Bolton and Elliot Abrams were close to him. But on the campaign trail, he was saying, I'm going to end the wars because people's kids are over there. People's family are over there. And when you're talking to Americans, you have to realize like a lot of these people are still brainwashed into thinking that, you know, the middle East is bad, but you can get them on your side by taking the angle of these are American lives that were are being sacrificed for nothing what did you gain from iraq you know what did you gain from the war or the intervention in libya is your life any different other than the fact that a lot more people have ptsd now um so yeah i think that's a good a point of strategy there to, to bring that up when you're talking to americans who maybe maybe don't have a full perspective of what's going on around the globe and that doesn't mean like abandoning that that other principled view that um that takes the empathetic perspective of the iranians right um, it just means that tactically, uh, it's, it's more probable that someone's going to hear your argument out if you go at it through what their direct interest is. 
And then from there, you can expand and build on them to, to the point where they actually care about what's going on in Iran, not just because we're sending soldiers over there, uh, but because it's not humane <laughs> to do what we're doing over there, that in the middle of a pandemic, we're putting blockades that are preventing uh, uh, the country from getting the, the things that it needs in order to protect its people. Great point. Yeah, you're not abandoning your principles. It's, you know, just being tactical. It's like, you have to think about what the direct interest of the person you're talking to is, you know, and, and pitch that to them, you know, if it, because the, because the goal is the same, regardless of how you're pitching the argument, it's to avoid war with Iran. So that also helps the principle of, you know, not hurting Iranians. And yeah, there's a lot of confusion, I think, like about strategy, like you're seeing paleo leftism become a thing where it's like, we'll be racist, we'll have super right wing social views, and then left wing economic views, like, that's not what the working class wants. You know, it's like, that's just like teenagers looking at um, the left's inability to organize workers and, and Trump's ability to organize them and going, oh, I guess we just got to be racist. No, you just have to understand what they want, you know, and, and what they want is to not see their kids sent into meaningless conflicts or, or to not see, you know, the people around them have, have PTSD and, and people recognize these problems. At this point, there's 20 plus veteran suicides a day. Um, so yeah, there, there's ways to reach American workers where you're not abandoning your principles and it doesn't involve being racist, um, is I guess my point there. Yeah, and the thing is that if as socialists, we realize that the interest of our working class is itself an internationalist interest at the end of the day, we can approach it both from the internationalist lens, which um, is probably not gonna be that successful, or we could approach it from their direct individualist lens, which then again is able to um, to expand into a proper internationalist uh, humanitarian uh, vision and not humanitarian, of course, in the, in the liberal bourgeois sense. <laughs> but um, yeah, not just tactically, theoretically, we do realize that the interest of the working class is internationalist. Um, so, but why then when we tactically approach people, why don't we take this into consideration and, and see what angle someone is more likely to accept um, and then from there expand. Yeah, one of the funny things we found during the Bernie campaign, which like, you know, I, I hold up the Bernie sign, but I've been super clear, Bernie's social democratic, he doesn't like hold our principles. But when we were pitching socialism to people, it was easier to pitch straight up socialism than it was social democracy, because social democracy, you're arguing from the point of empathy, right? Like, don't you want to give people health care? Don't you want to give people education? But if you just tell like a working class person, like, don't you hate your boss? Don't you wish the company was yours? Like that makes a lot more sense to a lot of them, you know? Um, so yeah, just arguing to people's, to people's individual interests, I think is a, a good strategy, but that's probably enough on Iran, I guess. Uh, we've been talking about Iran a lot lately, trying to keep people um, up to date on what's going on. Uh, my journal article um, for, our, for our print journal, uh, is going to have a big long section on Iran. Um, if you want to learn more, especially on the the 1953 coup and the 1979 revolution um, that will be released at the end of February. Um, so yeah, Carlos, you want to transition um, as we always do, or as we've been doing on these podcasts, I'm going to talk about a geopolitical issue, oftentimes contemporary. And then Carlos will talk about something philosophical or theoretical. So what do you got for us today? Yeah, today I have something that's perhaps one of the, from the hardest books to read made <laughs> in history. It's from Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit. Um, but I think that uh, the passage that I'm going to read and analyze is it holds 
quite a bit of pertinence and it helps us interpret um, the geopolitical situation. So it's, it's, um, it's gonna bear some form of relation to the topic of Iran and to the topic of um, the burgeoning of socialist states or what last century was called um, actually existing socialism. So um, yeah, so uh, Hegel is here talking about spirit, but uh, we'll see that if we interpret it in a materialist sense, which is what uh, Lenin, when he reads Hegel, when we, when we see Lenin's readings of Hegel in his philosophical notebooks, he's constantly marking, read this in a materialist sense, a materialist sense meaning from a proletarian epistemic. Um, so he says, spirit is indeed never at rest, but always engaged in moving forward. But just as the first breath drawn by a child after its long, quiet nourishment breaks the gradualness of merely quantitative growth, there is a qualitative leap and the child is born. So likewise, the spirit in its formation matures slowly and quietly into its new shape, dissolving bit by bit the structures of its previous world, whose tottering state is only hinted at by isolated symptoms. The frivolity and boredom which unsettled the established order the vague forbidding of something unknown. There are the heralds of approaching change. The gradual crumbling that left unaltered the face of the whole is cut short by a sunburst which in one flash illuminates the features of the new world. But this new world is no more complete actuality than is a newborn child. It is essential to bear this in mind. It comes on the scene for the first time in its immediacy or its notion just as little as a building is finished when its foundations has been laid. So little is achieved the notion, the notion on, the whole, on, on the whole, the whole itself. When we wish to see an oak tree with its massive trunk and spreading branches and foliage, we are not content to be shown an acorn instead. Um, so there's a lot of <laughs> the vagueness of, of Hegel and quite a bit of poeticness and, and and romanticized prose here, but I think there's two really important points. The first one, um, and, and, and the points here are related to um, the basic law of quantity to quality, the basic dialectical law of quantity to quality. The first thing is that when something is born, it's not born, it doesn't come out of a void. Um, it's born with uh, what Marx calls in his uh, critique of the Gotha program, with uh, the birthmarks of the previous society. So Hegel's talking about spirit and the development of spirit towards self-consciousness. We're talking about socialism. Socialism, uh, when it arises, it doesn't uh, arise in a void. It doesn't just come about from nowhere. It always comes about from a previous society. Um, and that means that in its development is still gonna have lingering elements from that previous society. And it's gonna take a quantitative accumulation for it to develop into its own thing and to rid itself finally of all the elements that were holding it back to that previous society. We have a socialism that what has existed in the last 120 years is quite young. That's what people don't understand. Capitalism took around 300 and, and some years in order for it to be analyzed systematically. Why is that? Well, because it needed a quantitative process of accumulation. It needed to develop industry and develop all of these things in order for the class relationships that are central to the system to be seen in its utmost clarity. And it's the same thing with socialism. Socialism not only has, has 
been still in its youthful development, but part of being in its youthful development has been to develop still within the womb of capitalism. We still have a global capitalism that rules um, economically and that rules ideologically. Its, its hegemony is spread across the whole world. And thus, we have to keep this in mind when we think about socialist states and not be idealist and criticize socialist states in comparison to the ideal that we hold, but realize that it is like a child that has just been born and that it is developing. And we can't criticize a child as if it was a man. Can you imagine philosophers going up to a, a child and being like, this thing here does not talk or reason. Therefore, humans do not talk or reasons and humans are, are stupid and they're the same as every other animal. That's absurd. We don't do that. We realize that the child needs to grow up in order to develop its essential characteristics. And in order for us to say something about the man, it, uh, we need to wait for him to become a man or a woman, whatever. We can't talk about the man as while it's a child. We can talk about the criticisms of socialism, socialism, quasi-socialism, in reference to a socialism that is a child still in its earliest stages of development. Um, we can talk about specific mistakes that were done by, by uh, so-and-so socialist states and how we can improve on them, but we can never talk about criticisms of socialism, quasi-socialism in our early stage of socialism. It's gonna take time for socialism to develop and then for us to be able to see once it polarizes and develops into its mature form, what are the contradictions in it that would force another society to come about. Um, there's a lot of idealism in the left today. Uh, and, and we see this in, in the fact that people look at socialist states and say, oh, they haven't abolished the commodity form or they still have this, they have that. And, and they fail to understand the material conditions that are in play globally, which is something that you do very well, Eddie, uh, establish what are the material dynamics and geopolitics. Um, and they fail to consider the natural dynamics in the internal process of development of socialism and that it takes time in order for things to be understood as how they are in essence. Mm. Yeah, you said a lot of, a lot of great stuff there. And um, I think this is, this is one of the books we recommend to everyone, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, because um, you have to realize, like we said, or like we were talking about before we got on the podcast, Marx, you know, socialism existed before Marx and Engels, or we've talked about this a lot, but they put a scientific basis to it. And like, like you, the quote you always use is the new system's going to emerge with the birthmarks of the, of the past system. And there's this desire to look at socialism in a vacuum, right? To be like, theoretically, this is how I want it to work, but you're not, you know, that's not realistic. Um, and if you look at, at what happened at the, with the socialist experiments at the end of the last century, the Soviet Union fell and China stuck around um, and Cuba stuck around and the DPRK stuck around. And now all these, these countries, you know, have these kind of private markets where they're, where they're, people can partake in consumerism while the major banks and the industry and the agriculture are controlled by the state and controlled by a communist party. And, and that's what's been able to survive in a global capitalism 
where one, the U.S. is trying to kill you with sanctions and maybe military force, but two, there's a propaganda war, you know, fighting for the, we don't realize the U.S. is also waging propaganda wars in these other countries, right? Telling their people, capitalism's so much better. You, we, you need the consumerism. Don't you want Nike sneakers? Your government won't let you have Nike sneakers. And, um, that the Soviet people fell into that. You have that famous, uh, commercial of Gorbachev with Pizza Hut, you know, they're like, Oh, don't you want Pizza Hut? Bam, the Soviet Union falls and you have 20% unemployment, you know, hunger shoots through the roof, all these horrible things happen. And now 75% of people wish they could go back to the Soviet economic system and Putin's nationalizing all these major industries. So as socialists, you know, and I get annoyed a little bit with like the really, really hardcore Maoists who are like, this is how it needs to be, you know, you need to do what Mao did. Like Xi Jinping in his book talks a ton about Mao, you know, he's trying to bring Mao to the 21st century because you have to realize the global context is changing. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I was reading recently the Libertarian Manifesto because I'm preparing for a debate with this Libertarian kid. And their whole thing is like Marxism's dead. Marxism has failed. And it's like, well, the second most powerful country in the world is Marxist. So how are you going to say that? And they just signed the largest trade deal in the history of the world, and it doesn't involve the U.S. So economic power is shifting to the East and all these countries who, who you know, still use Marxist doctrine, but are updating it for the 21st century. Um, but if you're a socialist and, and you're arguing with, with that idea that Marxism is dead and you think China is just a piece of crap, how are you going to argue that Marxism isn't dead? You know, you're going to be arguing, you're going to sound utopian. You're going to be like, oh, none of the other, none of the other countries have done it right. You know, we need to go back to what Marx wrote in 1860. Like, no, Marx wouldn't want us to do that. He would want us to adapt, you know, his method for nowadays. And you can think what you want of China's private market, right? You can critique it for sure. And, and the consumerism that comes with that and, and the, the, you know, private capital is, of course, going to look to expand and the, the private businesses within China are going to look to take, you know, power over the CCP. And it's good to keep an eye on that. But that but to just dismiss them, you know, as as um, because they have those birthmarks of the past system of the capitalist system. And those things are ingrained into the heads of their people, um, partly due to U.S. propaganda. Um, I don't know, just to write that off just seems ridiculous and arrogant to me, especially from Western leftists who live in the heart of the most imperialist, capitalist, rotten country in the world. Yeah, in the, in the 20th century, um, we had the, the publication in, in the 19, I think it was 1932, of a text that Marx does called the, uh, the Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts of 1844. It's a series of three manuscripts that get published. And it's Marx before he discovers what is called historical materialism in 46 with the German ideology. Um, and what happened was that, like you said, these idealist socialist elements from the West um, used that early doctrine of Marx to claim that that was the real Marx, that Marxist humanist um, was the real Marx. And then they sort of juxtaposed that to the Marxism of the Soviet Union and they criticized it for being economistic um, and and they said a bunch of things um, and I think that the paradox is that as you said the Soviet Union and the people the, the people in that uh, that be belonged to the Soviet Union I think the polls are like at 70 something percent of people um, either look favorably upon the Soviet Union or wish to return to those conditions if we think about uh, East Germany um, I think it's even higher uh, so 
that when you ask them, there's a good uh, channel I recommend you all to see. I think it's called Revolution Report. He has this one video where he's going around Russia and asking older folks what they thought of the Soviet Union. What was the thing that they liked the most? And in this video, all of the old people have the same answer. And the answer is that there wasn't this element of, uh, of, of competition that was sort of anti-human, that everyone had this one spirit of collective, everyone was really nice, um, everyone knew how to work together, uh, and, and, and the society had this bond and this connectivity of everyone as human beings that wasn't experienced before and that is definitely absent in Prussian Russia. Um, and definitely after, right after in the 90s, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And these folks who use the early marks to criticize Russia um, uh, don't see this element of progress in it. They compare it like, like we've been talking about to an ideal, um, but they don't see the element of progress. And one of the forms of alienation that Marx talks about famously, he talks about four, religion, but specifically he talks about alienation in the process of production, in the product, alienations from our species being and alienation from our fellow men. And what is the, 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 the responses that these people are saying, if not the overcoming of alienation from our fellow men? The ability to think of the community as collective, to not have hatred, to help each other. Um, the Soviet Union was able to overcome that. And a lot of the socialist states, most of them were able to overcome that, um, that form of alienation, that cutthroat mentality of looking at other people as stepping stones to climb up this one ladder to, to be part of the ruling class. Um, so it's ironic that these people who use the, the early marks, the younger marks, um, to, to critique socialist states don't see this phenomenon of even with the standards of the early Marx, the progress that was made spiritually in these communities were, were tremendous. I mean, you read the, um, the, the, the manuscripts and, uh, from, from the Soviet Union and a lot of what they're emphasizing is the connection of creative mental powers and, and physical powers. So basically, the undoing of the contradiction of the separation of mental and physical labor. And that's central to the early Marx. And that's central also to the latter Marx who in the highest stage of communism in the Gotha program is talking about the, the abolition of this contradiction itself. So um, yeah, I, I think still one of the biggest things we have to overcome philosophically or epistemologically in, in the way that we see the world is this idealistic outlook that says that if it's not how my ideas say it is, it is not real, it is not good. Um, we have to be more nuanced and realize that it's, it's all process. Um, it's, all a, a, it's all becoming. Um, we're not gonna get socialism to be socialism qua socialism, how it exists in our head uh, from one day to another. It's gonna take time, so. Yeah, that's the thing is, you know, we're not done, we're not saying, look what China did, aren't they perfect? And China's not saying that either. They keep setting these goals for themselves, you know, uh, end poverty by 2025, I believe it was. They hit that goal five years earlier than they were expecting to. Now it's build a, a prosperous socialist society by 2050. Um, and then it's funny, you know, one of the critiques of existing socialism um, that I've heard people make is that they didn't 
change the mode of production enough, right? It was too close to the siege socialism we talk about, where it's similar to, it's basically state capitalism. You know, they do these things for the workers, but they're so focused on defending from private capital that they can't do everything they want and, and really change the society. But then you're saying in some ways they did though, you know, there was, they did create a more collective mindset um, because you took away, you know, the, the, the ladder that we have in like, you know, the American dream where you just try and climb this corporate ladder to the top and it created a more collective mindset. And, you know, of course, this makes me think of Venezuela because everything makes me think of Venezuela. But, you know, you want you hear that Venezuela is in, in tatters and people are dying and, you know, people are dying and, and it's or, you know, not they're not just dropping dead left and right, but they are suffering from the 155 U.S. economic sanctions. But Maduro wins re-election every year. The the Guaido and the opposition party won the National Assembly election, I think, in 2015. But then, you know, they did nothing to help um, because all they are is just pro-Western. They have no actual ideas for how to develop Venezuela. And they got voted out. And the U.S. has been so unsuccessful in overthrowing uh, the Venezuelan government. And that's because the people are loyal to the Bolivarian Revolution. And you have, I don't even know what it was. It's, it's more than 500 communes in Venezuela because they're building this collective spirit and on, and and they've turned it against imperialism right they uh, they have their critiques of maduro in so fact you know when he goes towards neoliberalism when he abandons what they call the bolivarian revolution this combination of marxism with the independence and sort of nationalism of simon bolivar that uh, hugo chavez synthesized um, and now and then handed it off to to maduro um, they do have this collective spirit much unlike anything we've seen in the US, um, which is why it's funny when people tell me, why don't you go move to Venezuela? I'm like, I kind of want to some days, you know, I would like to go be a part of that Bolivarian revolution, you know, and be, you know, we have this collective spirit. And, and of course, we're not done, right? We want it to go more in that direction. We want to be to be more collective and, and erase these crappy, you know, things, this, this competition in life where it's like, I need to put you down in order for me to succeed. We want mutual co cooperation. Um, and, and we haven't achieved that to the level that Marx talks about, right? The early Marx where, you know, you always have that quote, you can fish one day, bake another, you know, it's kind of goofy. But if you think about way in the future, I mean, that is the goal, you know, to, to liberate people and allow humans to flourish as much as possible. But we're in the early stages, you know, we're, we're just um, socialism. It doesn't seem, you know, it seems like a long time since Marx wrote Capital, but it hasn't been that long, you know, it was in the late 18 or mid to late 1800s where he was writing all his stuff. Um, and, and socialism is still still in its in its early phases compared to what we're going to see in the future. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And the people that talk about how there was no change in in the way things were produced because um, basically the bureaucratic class took the positions of managers and, um, and capitalists. I mean, I just find it so absurd because um, even if you, if you look at the agricultural sector, the sector that makes all of the food for society, most of those sectors were not nationalized. Those sectors were cooperatized. There was direct democracy going on in those sectors. Um, and it, there was not just one form of prop, property, there was a plethora of different forms of collectively related properties going on. It wasn't just nationalized property, but even like the amount of power that the workers had in that nationalized property is unlike 
anything we've been close to seeing in the U.S. just because of the amount of worker councils and unions and 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 all sorts of stuff and just the fact that who who were the party people they weren't just like bureaucrats most of them were were workers as well and part of the society so um yeah we have to rid ourselves of this idealistic um element uh in order to properly engage in an anti-imperialist discourse and i think that this idealism is is mostly prevalent in in our societies of comfort which paradoxically are the same societies that although they expect profession perfection from other existing socialist states um they are very happy to make concessions and be very strategic when it comes to the us and to support social democratic candidates who uh, don't even do the slightest thing to pass <laughs> uh, uh, the most basic things that, that a country could have so um there's a little bit of hypocrisy there too that, that has to be called out, but yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds sure. me of a quote that, that Marx has of, uh, of Feuerbach. He says that, um, that Feuerbach, when he's a good historian, he's a bad materialist. And when he's a good materialist, he's a, he's a bad historian. Um, and and our, our left seems to have a similar dynamic that when it comes to foreign policy, they're idealists, but when it comes to it's a national policy that try to be the most materialist and, <laughs> and huh. out of the bunch. So yeah. that's an interesting way to think about it. That's really true. <laughs> it's like, who cares if we're always in a hundred wars, let's get free healthcare. But then uh, you look at China and it's like, Oh no, they're all bad because uh, Winnie the Pooh is banned, which isn't even true. By the way, I looked into that Winnie the Pooh isn't banned in China. It's Western, a Western lie, but yeah. Yeah, that was really good. I support the the Chinese Communist Party as they actively put in their ballot to vote for Joe Biden and imperialism, and I <laughs> support the Democratic Party. So, right. Yeah. For sure. All right. Do you have anything else you want to hit on before we wrap it up here? Um, I do not. All right. Yeah, check out our website. Um, keep watching our YouTube. We're going to try and get these on Spotify and Apple Music at some point. Um, definitely check out our website. Uh, what was the last thing we released? I don't even know. Um, we released the, la the last article we released was uh, a piece that analyzed alienation um, in, in censorship. So it analyzed speech as a productive act and then censorship of speech as a form of alienation. It's actually a quite interesting philosophical article, but um, yeah, we have a print journal coming up that should be out either late February or early March. Um, it's gonna be a massive uh, piece of work with a bunch of articles, great artwork, um, and we're gonna try to sell it literally as, as cheap as possible, but um, it is gonna be quality work. So uh, we, if you want to help us out in the, in the printing process, uh, which is where most of our Patreon funds go to, um, you can help us out by becoming a Patreon. We have a $3 option and, and a $10 option. So, um, but yeah, thank you for watching if you made it this far. Yeah, for sure. We appreciate it and stay tuned. Leave comments of anything you want us to discuss or questions. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Sweet. See you.